0: What's up, y'all? This is John LaRance with Anesthesia Guidebook. Today, my guests are Trent and Katie Bishop, a CRNA couple who practice independently and live in Durango, Colorado. We're going to talk about serotonin syndrome and cases that both Trent and Katie have recently experienced as providers in their practice. Their stories are remarkable, and I think they're going to help solidify the differential diagnosis, risk factors, and management priorities of serotonin syndrome for you. I want to give you a super quick overview of serotonin syndrome right now at the start of the show, then introduce you to Katie and Trent in our conversation, and then I'm going to wrap up with a more thorough review of serotonin syndrome at the end of the show as well. So you're going to get a quick heads up right now, then the stories, then a more detailed summary at the end, all with the goal of helping this info stick. So you're going to hear us talk a little bit about the triad of symptoms with serotonin syndrome. These symptoms are present in the context of a patient taking a serotonergic medication. More on that in just a second. This triad includes altered mental status, including confusion, agitation, and or anxiety, autonomic dysfunction, including hypertension, diaphoresis, tachycardia, and hyperthermia, and neuromuscular excitability, specifically hyperreflexia, including clonus. These symptoms usually have a rapid onset within a couple of hours of serotonergic medications being administered. This is opposed to a more insidious or slow onset of symptoms related to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which Katie will talk about in the podcast. Clonus is often observed as a repetitive muscular twitching when reflexes are stimulated, though the clonus may be happening spontaneously. One way to test for clonus is to extend the patient's leg straight and then rapidly dorsiflex the foot, which means to push the toes up towards their nose in a swift motion, and then let go. The leg and foot should twitch like they're tapping their toes to music. Clonus may also include ocular clonus or repetitive eye twitching. You should definitely Google this or YouTube this to check out what we're talking about with clonus. Severe serotonin syndrome may progress to rhabdomyolysis, acute renal failure, and disseminated intravascular coagulation, coma, and death. Serotonergic medications include those used to treat depression like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs. Other medications that anesthesia providers might administer include phenolpaparidine opioids like fentanyl, sufentanyl, alfentanyl, and remifentanil, antiemetics including ondansetron and metoclopramide, antibiotics including linizolid, erythromycin, and ciprofloxin, the antifungal fluconazole, and methylene blue. The combination of these medications lead to an increase in serotonin in the bloodstream, which leads to a serotonin crisis. Diagnosing serotonin syndrome can be challenging due to the differential diagnosis. That should include malignant hyperthermia, postoperative delirium and pain, opioid-induced muscle rigidity, seizure, and neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which we're going to talk about in more detail at the end of the show. The treatment of serotonin syndrome is supportive and targeted managing symptoms. Stop the offending agent and avoid giving more serotonergic medications like fentanyl or dimerol, beperidine. Give IV fluid. Cool the patient. Manage hypertension and tachycardia. Administer a benzodiazepine with a muscle relaxant property like diazepam, which is Valium, or lorazepam, which is Ativan, to help control the clonus and hyperreflexia. And give ciproheptidine, which is a 5-HT2A antagonist. Ciproheptadine is an oral medication and dosing is discussed in the podcast and also at the end of the show. Seek help from other anesthesia providers and PACU nurses. Someone may have seen this before. Review serotonin syndrome in electronic references or crisis checklist. Intervene early and provide reassurance to your patient. There is no lab test for serotonin syndrome. Symptom management and administration of a benzodiazepine and cyproheptadine are low-risk interventions that maybe all your patient needs to stop the crisis from escalating to severe stages. I'll review this information in a little bit more detail at the end of the podcast to provide some additional context, but hopefully this quick overview is helpful. Perhaps it's like a five-minute review if you're actually trying to manage or diagnose serotonin syndrome. So let me introduce Katie and Trent Bishop, and then we're going to work through their case studies. Trent has a background in biology and EMS prior to pursuing a career as a critical care registered nurse, and now as a CRNA. He has prior work experience at level one and level two trauma centers, working in open heart and vascular surgery. He currently enjoys working as an independent CRNA in a small surgical hospital in Durango, Colorado. One of the things he has truly come to love about anesthesia in a rural environment is seeing his patients out in the community and knowing that he did a small thing to make their lives better. Katie has been a registered nurse since 2004 when she started out working on a high acuity inpatient floor before transitioning to the medical ICU in 2006. She considers it the best experience anyone could have asked for prior to anesthesia as she ran the code team for many years and floated and worked in other ICUs as well. She has worked as a CRNA at level one and two trauma centers for the last several years. She absolutely loves independent practice and regional anesthesia and is actively engaged in expanding her regional anesthesia practice. She writes aside from loving medicine and anesthesia, I absolutely adore my family and my time with our toddler, Jackson Trent and our fur babies, two dogs and a cat. Durango is the best place for us to be with all of the snowboarding, camping, hiking, rafting, and travel. It's even better when friends and families come to visit. I'm stoked for you to hear from Katie and Trent today. I think their case studies are remarkable. I think it's really going to help solidify serotonin syndrome and the management priorities around this condition. And with that, let's get to the show. All right. Well, Katie and Trent, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having us, John. We're excited to talk about our situations and what we've gone through.
0: Yeah, for sure. So give us just a quick rundown. I I know I introduced you on the podcast, but give us just a quick rundown on on who you are, how y'all met, and what your path in anesthesia has been so far.
1: All right. um, So to give y'all a little background, uh, Trent and I met down in Charleston, South Carolina while we were ICU nurses at MUSC. Um, We both were set on the path for anesthesia and graduated together from USC School of Medicine in 2014 in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, we got married just prior to graduation and started our careers in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, after that, we moved to a Level One Trauma Center for a couple years, and then ventured up to Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, three years into our practice in Asheville, we had a the not-for-profit community hospital was sold to mega mega corporation. So we decided it was time for a change, and uh, through some networking, we found an opportunity to relocate to Durango, Colorado, where we are currently independent practitioners at the surgical hospital.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And where, where in the path, so the two of you are married, where in the path did you uh, meet each other and, and, and where along the way did you get married?
2: Um, so we met at a Super Bowl party in 2010. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> were, were you on the same team? Uh, I don't think either of us really cared about the Super Bowl. So. <laughs> oh, too
0: distracted <laughs> yeah. with each other. Maybe. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah <and> hanging <laughs> out with friends. Could, couldn't even tell you who was playing in that game. Baltimore, maybe. I don't know. Okay, cool. Uh, so anyhow, we, uh, we kind of hit it off and started chatting and both of us had already, uh, kind of started on the past like, working towards the anesthesia school. And, uh, we said, we kind of hit it off and it's like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And she said, that's what I'm going to do. And we decided we'd do it together. And if uh, we didn't kill each other the uh, first year of anesthesia school, we'd get married. So um, we, we kind of knew we had some time at the end of anesthesia school that we could manage. And uh, so decided to get married then and then started anesthesia together.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Well, congrats. Uh, so it so sounds like you made it through the first year of anesthesia school okay with each other.
2: Yeah, it was actually. I don't know. People say they hate anesthesia school, but I think it was kind of. It fun. actually worked I mean. <laughs> really well for us.
1: <laughs> we just, both were the type that didn't like to sit in the library, and we had a decent setup at the house, so we were actually good partners with.
2: Just kind of sit around and geek out and the <laughs> anesthesia. Quiz so. each other. Yeah, even I,
1: though I'm yeah. a little bit more OCD than Trent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who was the better student? Katie. Yeah. Uh, that's, there you go. Yeah. That, that's actually not too, not too dissimilar from my own story. You know, I met my wife, Kristen in anesthesia school and in order to hang out with her in order to hang out, she was like, the only way we're hanging out is if we're studying. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's pretty laser focused, uh, which I found to be really helpful actually. <laughs> and she sounds like me. Yeah. She's definitely, uh, the better student for sure. So, um, well, Kate, I'm, I'm so stoked to have both of you on to talk about serotonin syndrome. You have both had uh, case studies of your own as CRNAs and also reaching back into your days as critical care nurses. So we'll talk about those case studies and then kind of break down serotonin syndrome a little bit more specifically for the listeners. But Katie, I initially reached out to you because you posted on Facebook a recent story about a case of serotonin syndrome that you managed in PACU. you. So I was wondering if you could just give us a recap on what happened.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, It was interesting. I was actually in the high room that day, so it was an easy day for me. I dropped my patient off in PACU, and the nurse came over and uh, told me one of my colleagues around the corner probably needed some help, and so when I rounded the corner, he was standing at the bedside with a small crowd, and his patient was having what looked like seizure activity. Um, Her heart rate was like in the 130s. Blood pressures were about i say 130s to 140s systolic. Um, he said her tip was 37, but he really thought it was malignant hyperthermia. So quick background for the girl. She was this teenage girl, no allergies, no health history. She was just dropped off in PACU. He had actually walked away. And after 15 minutes, uh, or it was a simple procedure that only lasted 15 minutes under general anesthesia. And so he told me he just gave sucks for intubation, maintained on gas, and had given fentanyl and Zofran. So I asked what kind of home bed she was on and she was on a And so I go over to assess her and notice that she has nystagmus. So her eyes were actually just going back and forth with intermittent myoclonus of all extremities and it was more so in her legs. But it's it was it's a weird presentation. She would go limp for a few seconds and then basically the muscle spasticity would come back and it looked painful. Um, with a quick neuro exam though, she could follow all commands, uh, so it wasn't like a tonic-clonic seizure. Uh, she was completely oriented. She could tell me everything, uh, but she's just exhausted. So I went ahead and put in an A-line because I knew that she was going to need more labs. And at that time, I didn't know if it wasn't MH. I wasn't 100% sure. And I was concerned that if it was, that she's going to deteriorate pretty quickly. Um, So at this point, I suggested serotonin syndrome, and I went ahead and asked the nurse to put in a second IV and just go ahead and open IV fluids. She wasn't on on a nasal cannula, but we just put her on a non-rebreather just in case and put a temp probe on her forehead. Um, So after back and forth with the anesthesiologist, uh, we decided to go ahead and give five milligrams of Valium because it... it it was going to be fine to try, you know, to see what happened. And then we gave another five in about five more minutes for the myoclonus. Um, In the meantime, her clinical presentation stayed the same. Uh, Her myoclonus started to get better and her heart rate and blood pressure about the same. So we went ahead and put ice on her uh, armpits and then her groin just in case. But so basically after about, I want to say, 15 minutes, her myoclonus Subsided even more and at that point we went ahead and requested ciproheptidine from the other hospital in town since we didn't have it And um, at that point I couldn't do anything else. So I just went back to my room and proceeded with my room So one of the CRNAs came in and told me later. I guess the patient had drastically improved They uh, she had normal labs and ciproheptidine had been given and within 20 minutes. She was completely fine Wow
0: Oh, there's so many things about that story. Um, yeah, that's very fascinating. So, so she, so you, she did end up getting ciproheptidine.
1: She did, and you know, she, she was altered, but she was still able to swallow. So, like I said, she could follow all commands and stuff. It's just, a, it's an interesting situation to see. And once you see something like it, you'll never forget it.
0: Yeah, and that's an important note you said about being able to swallow because she, because that's an oral medication.
1: Yeah. And it's, P- it's a pill form and liquid form, but you can also crush it. There's no problem with crushing it either.
0: Okay. So what, what about her presentation, like really stood out to you to say you're, so you're standing there and you say there's a, there's a physician anesthesiologist who is going down like a malignant hyperthermia route. What about her presentation hit you as odd and saying, you know, maybe this isn't M- MH and what stood out to you to say, maybe this is serotonin syndrome?
1: So to me, it's all about the clinical presentation. When I walked over, I did a quick neuro exam and, you know, he was saying MH. so basically you have to roll out everything else that you're thinking because there's no lab work or anything for serotonin syndrome. Her eyes were a big key factor. Um, the way that her eyes were going, it was kind of like she had ketamine, but he doesn't even ever use ketamine. And um, the myoclonus is definitely one to note. I would highly recommend looking up videos just to see what it looks like. And apparently the, it can happen more in the lower extremities, but it's almost like a writhing. And then the more uh, critical patients that I've seen in the ICU, it actually, they look possessed in a way. But this particular case, she would be somewhat coherent and kind of relaxed. And then she would start moving again and she just couldn't control it. Um, and then her temperature never got, it never went above 38 i say so it wasn't like a malignant hyperthermia situation her vital signs stayed the same um but she just didn't have the rigidity either like it like what would happen with malignant hyperthermia so of course then the other thing that you think about is neuroleptic malignant syndrome but that didn't make sense in this situation because it was a, she didn't, it wasn't on any dopamine agonists. And it didn't seem like she would have have any reason to have withdrawn from anything that would cause a huge dopamine release. Plus, it was just a 15-minute case. So serotonin syndrome happens quickly. Um, it's usually quick onset. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is longer onset. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome presents with like a lead pipe rigidity. And then sometimes tongue smacking, um, I don't know completely about pupils I think I believe pupils stay the same in in neuroleptic malignant syndrome but the myoclonus and the the ocular my uh, clonus or basically where the eyes go either side to side or roll around continuously in their head is a strong indicator for serotonin syndrome.
2: The, the clonus is very distinct like I I uh, reaching back I think I saw it maybe once in the ICU but yeah. for some reason it stuck with me and I've been a, around a lot of seizure patients. Um, it was very, very distinct. Um, it, the nurses immediately, in my case, thought it was a seizure, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, "No, this is it's not seizure activity."
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, so just to kind of crystallize, like the classic signs and symptoms. There's this triad of symptoms with serotonin syndrome: that's altered mental status. Autonomic dysfunction, which can be hypertension, tachycardia, and hyperthermia classically, and neuromuscular excitability, which is this clonus or hyperreflexia that you're talking about or myoclonus. So, a muscle group, uh, hyperreflexibility, or a, you know, particularly with the eyes, as you were talking about. so that's, that's very interesting. Uh, Trent, let's talk about your case real quickly and then, um, maybe some of the ICU cases that you both experienced and then we'll kind of talk about maybe all of these together. So what, what have you seen in the past? You recently had an experience as a CRNA, is that correct?
2: So correct. It was, it was actually here at the same practice,
1: um, within six months,
2: well, six months. It may have been up a, it was a year ago cause our new partners weren't here yet. So you'll have to forgive me for not remembering all the specifics. Um, It was a young, healthy lady for a laparoscopic procedure. Uh, Her only home meds were antidepressants and lithium. Uh, Interop was completely normal. Towards the end of the case, the surgeon wanted to give methylene blue, and the nurse kind of controls that. So she scanned it before handing it to me. And when she did, uh, the charting system kind of gave us a little alarm that there might be a contraindication. And um, our first practice out of school, we had some required reading, probably because there was one of these cases. And um, I kind of remember that and let the surgeon know, okay, like, hey, this is the risk and the concern. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have a viable alternative to the methylene blue. And he felt strongly that he needed to, um, you know, check the ureters or make sure he didn't get into the bladder. So we proceeded with the methylene blue. You know, the case ended without without any issues. Took her to PACU, and uh, I was kind of the end of the day, so I was the only person in the house. Everyone else's room was done and they wow. were gone. Right? I had one more case to do, so uh, I was actually inducing the next case in the OR, and the PACU came running in saying my last patient was seizing. So, um, kind of got my patient stable in the OR. Uh, actually, handed her off to the surgeon who sat there and monitored anesthesia, and ran over to PACU to deal with um, this case. So, when I ran, so I'd let, let me let go. me
0: let me jump in just real quick. Sure. So you handed the, you handed a patient off to the surgeon to monterey anesthesia. Had they started the case?
2: Had not started surgical incision. What, no. what, what, so, what
0: was that case going to be?
2: It was another of the same. So laparoscopic. A uh, GYN. GYN. patients
0: do. Patients intubated on inhalation patients, yeah,
2: Correct. Pati- patients intubated. Um, like I said, I kind of had to hang out, make sure she's, you know, after intubation, she kind of leveled out. Uh, gave the surgeon some instructions, gave the nurse instructions, <laughs> um, to, you know, kind of just set the dial on my gas and told him don't, don't touch anything. And if there's any issue, I'm right across the hall. So, um, All right. So well, that's, uh,
0: that's remarkable. I just wanted to get a little bit more info on that. Cause that is not a usual experience for, I would say no. a wide swath of CRNAs in the United States. You're the only no. anesthesia provider in house. You've got an emergency impact you, and that's how you set your patient up in the OR.
2: Yep. So he he sat there. I you know told the nurses the vitals I wanted to know, and uh, come get me if they they went outside of those parameters. Okay. Um. So while we were doing that, I had PACU give my patient two a versa. Not having seen them, just okay. Uh, taking taking them at their words, it was seizure seizure activity. Um. So as soon as I walked into the PACU, I realized it was not seizures. It was serotonin syndrome. Um. And at that point, I knew I was going to need some some additional assistance because I couldn't manage my patient, the OR, that, (laughs) you know, couldn't, couldn't do it all. Um, so luckily we have a little, uh, emergency room in the hospital. So I went, ran over, got the, uh, the ED doc who was in house and asked him if he could come give me a hand. Um, the patient in PACU was stable. Uh, she had clonus, she had some tachycardia, um, she's diaphoretic, but, but stable. And she would have the clonus and then it would stop and she could answer questions uh nodding yes you know yes and no appropriately um so it wasn't uh it was not an unstable crisis i guess you could say okay um so i had the ed.com unfortunately one of my anesthesia partners lives five minutes away and she was able to come back and kind of take over management in the PACU so i could go back to my OR patient Oh, that's
0: interesting. And uh, just incidentally, did you finish that case that was going on in the OR?
2: We did. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we knew it was serotonin syndrome. Um, Like I said, I'd given Valium up front. That did not fix the Clonus. As soon as I walked over and we realized what it was, we pulled up up to date and started looking at, you know, appropriate treatment and uh, immediately gave Valium kind of before I had anybody else there. And the Valium stopped the Clonus. Um, So at that point, I felt like we had a good handle on what it was. And uh, I, I honestly can't remember if we were able to get the cryptoheptadine from um, the other hospital in that incident. But I want to say we just managed um, with the Valium overnight and things resolved safely. Right,
0: right, right. So take us into that case a little bit more. You get a call, Pac, you saying they're having a seizure you show up and you said immediately knew that this was not a seizure. It was serotonin syndrome. So you, it sounds like you had a couple minutes. You're, I'm sure you're running through some differential diagnoses before you even get to Packy, But what were the clues for you? What what cued you in? Uh, it sounds like maybe you were even thinking about serotonin syndrome prior to administering the methylene blue. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Before we even gave the methylene blue. I, I knew that was the the risk of giving methylene blue. And the surgeon and I discussed it. We just... He didn't have another option okay. um, for what he needed to do. So you actually
0: talked uh, about hey this could cause serotonin syndrome.
2: Correct. That's yeah, fascinating. So, so Katie had more like a Doogie Hauser moment. She just showed up, recognized <laughs> it for what it was, and uh went about her day. I kinda I, I had I had fair warning that this could be a thing.
0: So. I mean we w- we were just talking about how she was the smarter one in anesthesia school, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't
2: say smarter. Yeah. When I have a, when I have an issue, that's who I call. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh,
0: awesome.
2: She, she's been in it longer. She can recognize the oddball stuff because...
1: I've just been in medicine
2: since 2004 so. And I think I'm the guy that can kind of react and get stuff done yeah. in a crisis. Uh, that's, that's more of <laughs> my specialty.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you all are a good team. Um, well, help the listeners out a little bit more. And, and Katie and maybe Trent too, you all have also seen this in the ICU. You've seen some pretty severe cases of serotonin syndrome is that correct
1: yeah i have um so this is about at least 10 years ago when i was an icu nurse and uh there were two that stuck out the most the first and both of them were younger women or teenage maybe younger 20s or so the first one was the bad one and that was the one that overdosed on a full bottle of antidepressants and beta blockers so she didn't do very well she uh she, she came to us already intubated and um, and went through a fast course to rhabdo, renal failure, arts ECMO, and then she expired. But the second one was the one that stood out the most because she was not intubated yet. And uh, she had overdosed on her antidepressants. So when she got to us, she deteriorated pretty quickly, but she was... Um, it was crazy to watch her. She was constantly like moving and seizing and her eyes were insane. So she kind of looked like she was possessed. Um, she was really diaphoretic. I remember her temp was through the roof, um, blood pressure and heart rate were through the roof. So immediately we had to intubate, paralyzed, sedate. Um, she stayed for quite a while. I couldn't tell you exactly how long, but, uh, she ended up doing well. So we just pushed through it with time. Um, and I know at the time I hadn't even, none of us had heard of ciproheptadine. I even brought the case back up to some of my coworkers who are still down in Charleston. and They still hadn't heard of ciproheptadine either, which is interesting, but she ended up doing okay.
0: Wow. Uh, well, that's remarkable. I'm stoked that she had a good outcome. In um, yeah. thinking about all of these cases, I was wondering where I was going a moment ago is to help the listeners out with like... A little bit more of putting the puzzle pieces together. So serotonin syndrome is not dramatically common, despite the fact that you each, as CRNAs, had cases within six months of each other at a small surgical hospital in a rural setting, which is remarkable but some people may go a whole career and not see this. So when they do see this, it's not uncommon for this to be confused with other things uh, like no. MH or neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So um, what are, let's just review some of the key signs and symptoms and things that helped clue the two of you in on your cases to say, Hey, this is serotonin syndrome.
2: Sure. So I, I think both Katie and I agree that the way the, you know, quote unquote seizure activity presents. It's not your typical seizure activity. Uh, it's or just,
1: like anything you've really seen before. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just weird writhing. Uh, there was some rhythmic activity with the one I saw, but they also have an inducible clonus. So that was one thing we did with, with my patient is, um, and it, it's primarily in the lower extremities. So if you push back on the balls of their feet, uh, you will see a clonus as the,
1: the feet, feet will flap. Yeah, yeah,
2: the feet show clonus as they relax. Um, and again, that's not every time. And with my patient, it wasn't super apparent, but I think that's because she had already had the volume.
1: Well, and the thing is, it depends. Like, uh, you know, you basically have to rule out other differentials based off the sim- symptomatology and history since the triad is present with the other reactions. So... You know, it is really in really mild forms and might come across as agitation, can't sit still, like have tremors. But yeah, like Trent said, the lower extremity clonus is a big deal. And then the pupils as well, like I said before, just basically mild to moderate. The moderate cases are going to show you you'll be able to see the difference with the eyes and more confusion or altered mental status. And then it progresses to, you know, the more critical cases. Um, So, but yeah, you basically have to go through say malignant hyperthermia first and look and see what their CO2 is, see what their temperature is. Um, You know, the mild to moderate cases, they're not going to go sky high like malignant hyperthermia. And then malignant hyperthermia is going to have rigidity like, and it's going to progressively get worse. Um, You're going to have Brady reflexia. You're going to have high CO2 mottled skin with flushing and cyanosis, their skin and serotonin syndrome, is normal i mean well sometimes it could be flushed yeah um
2: and my lady was very diaphoretic but
1: and then yeah like normal pupils for malignant hyperthermia um and then like i said before with neuroleptic malignant syndrome that's we i don't Know that we would really see that unless we were back up to ER, you know, like, or just because that's, you know, and the patients would be on some dopamine agonist or have withdrawn, say Parkinson patients who hadn't taken their meds. Maybe they couldn't afford their meds and were off the past week, but that's a little bit slower onset.
2: So To me, one of the tricky things with this is the patients at risk are at risk because they take one of the most common meds in the U.S. that you're going to see people on, (laughs) Right, so it's it's I guess not I don't know if I should say it's it's surprising we don't see more or if it maybe it just goes unrecognized because it's kind of lower intensity. I don't know how to how right say right
0: yeah, it and, and maybe maybe there is a higher incidence out there, but it's more of the mild form. so I, I think this is very interesting syndrome because you're right, Trent, that you know, in the literature talks about, the more common that depression has has become in the United States, the more people are on monoamine oxidase inhibitors or MAOIs, and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors SSRIs. Which, Katie, in in your case, you were talking about your patient being on Effexor, which is yep. which is a clue that you know she came in on an antidepressant or SSRI. And then you know went through a general anesthetic in which she got. I think you said she got fentanyl and maybe on dancitron. Did you mention that? Yep,
1: mm-hmm. which There's
0: are which are also you know have an interplay with serotonin. So th- these are so so yeah. It's it is crazy that we don't see more of this because I mean, how many patients get fentanyl in general anesthesia in the United States? How many people get on dancitron? How many folks are on SSRIs or? MAOIs. And then with Trent, with yours, methylene blue is another really common um, medication that's implicated in serotonin syndrome. So when when we're giving these medications all together, I think that is, it it is surprising that we don't see this more often, but I think it makes the perioperative environment an area where we are maybe more commonly going to see this out of all kind of healthcare environments, if that makes sense,
2: because we're giving these medications to people. Yeah. So it's our routine medications <laughs> that we give, like well, you said, with every case. so Right. Uh, and I think and that's I – mean, go ahead.
1: Okay. I was just going to say, and the only way to try to assess, to see if you can prevent it, is to ask them in pre-op too if they recently had any dose changes or if they were recently put on the medicine, you know, and then that way, because those patients that have had dose changes in the past week or two are going to be – more prone or susceptible to having a serotonin syndrome.
0: Right. And and the literature does talk about, you know, if they're, if they're switching antidepressants and, you know, if they're on a new antidepressant, they haven't had an adequate washout period of the old medication. So they're having something else you know, maybe they're transitioning from an MAOI, which is, uh, you know, monamine oxidase is something that breaks down serotonin. So if you're inhibiting the breakdown of serotonin and you're switching over to an SSRI, which is inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, you basically have a serotonin crisis. You have too much serotonin in the bloodstream, and then these other medications, antiemetics, uh, which are obviously um, interplay on 5-HT3 um, agonists on dantrolon. So you just get too much serotonin in the system, which gives you the syndrome, which is Super interesting. So, it's putting all those puzzle pieces together, and maybe I mean I don't have seen these cases shaped your decision when you see people on MAOIs or SSRIs in your choice of either analgesics or
2: antiemetics. I mean, Is it you know the antidepressants are just so common that would be altering maybe half of your practice.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um,
1: we still do multimodal anesthesia too and block patients as well. So we're big fans of decreasing fentanyl use or regular narcotics and going heavy handed with that, which we used to do. So that's obviously going to help. But my thing is, is just be aware and know what to treat and to basically knowing the signs and just in case, I, you know, I don't I don't completely admit fentanyl if if, if they're on any type of medicine that I'm I'm concerned about, I just, you know, it's a flag for you.
0: Right. Right. That's interesting. Well, you all have both mentioned various treatments of serotonin syndrome in your respective cases. So let's just review that role quickly for the listeners. So you both mentioned giving Valium to help interrupt the clonus. Um, was that, was that like a first line intervention that you thought about? Were you Katie, you talked a little bit about trying to you know, rule out MH. You're, you're adding some monitoring, your like temperature monitoring, oxygen, those kinds of things. And then you're also thinking about how do we deal with this clonus. So how did you each kind of think through your treatment approach to this?
1: Yeah, so basically with, a, with serotonin syndrome, they recommend using a benzo uh, just to kind of calm them down in the top tier, Valium and Ativan, just for muscle relaxation. So I went with Valium just because of the muscle relaxation. So repeating a few doses of that uh, usually helps calm them down a little bit. It doesn't always make it go away. So you start with that, and then, you know, they want you to hydrate. So IV fluids wide open, and the hyperthermia that happens with serotonin syndrome is actually because of the spasms that they're having. So it's a muscular-induced hyperthermia. So, like, Tylenol and antipyretics aren't going to help. You get volume, volume, and you cool them down with ice packs. And of course, putting oxygen on because shivering and the myoclonus increases your oxygen consumption like something crazy. But uh, then the other thing is, you know, to treat autonomic instability depending on how bad it is, especially with like these, you know, more mild to moderate forms. You give something short acting like esmolol or nipride for the hypertension and tachycardia. Some of the more severe cases, they can have very labile vital signs and autonomic instability. So you have to be careful if you're treating the hypertension and tachycardia because then they can swing really low and go opposite on you. But yeah, like some of them can have arrhythmias. And then, like I said before, worst case scenario is intubated, paralyzed, sedated, and cooled.
2: For mine, I would just point out, so I had given Versed and that had no effect on the clonus. So that's that's something to tuck away and remember is go for that Valium or Ativan if, to stop that Clonus. And then I don't know, Katie covered most of us. The other thing I'll point out is just my patient was terrified. Um, right. And you could see it in her eyes. And I think it meant a lot that we recognized that and made sure we made eye contact with her and um, just kind of that emotional sport. It's okay. We know what's going on. We're going to take care of you. And uh, I, I think that's, an important thing to remember as a practitioner is always remember that patient.
1: Mine was the same way too. You could tell she was terrified, especially when I walked over and there's people standing back trying to figure out what was going on with her. Yeah. Um,
0: Do you think that, I mean, you think about like you read these symptoms on a, on a sheet of paper. So, or today's world on a screen, uh, you know, so altered mental status, autonomic dysfunction, but we're looking at like an amped up state with tachycardia hypertension clonus, you know, rigidity, hyperreflexia. So people are wiggling and moving in strange ways. They've got an altered mental status. I mean, how easy do you think it would be for anesthesia providers to say, wow, this person looks like they're in pain. Let's give them more fentanyl, you know, which could be problematic or, or, or that
2: that actually was a, that was actually a problem in my case, um, in PACU, she had just had a major abdominal surgery and in between her clonus, she was telling us how much pain she was in. And trying to figure out which route to go there, um, interesting, so the honestly, I think the volume helps, <laughs> even though it's not an analgesic I think it whether it just calmed her down to where she relaxed and maybe wasn't tightening up on those muscles that were hurting um, but that was that was definitely a conundrum. Uh, for what to do with my patient
1: well and then the other thing to consider is you know there's so many cases that come out that have post-op shivering so automatically you know one thing that we consider is Demerol which is a no-no in serotonin syndrome so if by chance you do see a patient who's having extreme shivering or shaking which I almost feel like the myoclonus is just taking that up to another level you know if you give Demerol and they get worse then that's the big flag
0: yeah Yeah. That is interesting. Or I would think if you give fentanyl and they get worse, you know, if you, um, what you're assuming is pain, if that's not getting better, if they're not calming down, if their tachycardia is not chilling out, if their blood pressure is not calming down and you've loaded them up with additional doses of fentanyl, you may be contributing to the problem by adding more of a, you know, of a free serotonin in their bloodstream. Um,
1: for sure. So
0: Mm So let's talk about uh, ciproheptadine and where that comes in and, and how y'all thought about that. Is that something that, I mean, I, that's a medication that I think people are probably only given in serotonin syndrome. So it's not something that people probably have a lot of familiarity with ahead of these cases. So help people wrap their head around this medication and, and how it's used in serotonin syndrome.
1: So, you know, it's a basic... Uh antihistamine. And yeah, like you said, we don't ever use it. The only time that I ever heard about it was when you mentioned serotonin syndrome. But I think it's got a pretty high safety profile. And, uh, you know, it's a histamine one receptor antagonist non nonspecific 5-HT1A and 5-HT2A um, and weak anticholinergic activity. But basically, if you're not going to hurt anything giving some ciproheptadine it might cause mild sedation like you know like a benadryl but that's not going to be a bad thing in this situation and then sometimes when you do reverse the serotonin you can have slight hypotension but I, in my experience i haven't heard that happen and i haven't seen it happen and then it's an or only oral form and it's cheap i know that our pharmacy got it for it's a decent amount uh, well i can't tell you exact exact amount uh, sure. how much you got but
2: it was, it was worth having on hand at this
0: point. <laughs>
1: yeah, so now we have it.
0: So now you have it. Because at the time, Katie, you said that you actually had to request it from a nearby hospital. Yep. That's in, and I would imagine like a courier service or someone brought that over for you. Yeah, it only took
1: 15 minutes. We're a small minutes.
2: community, so probably literally the pharmacy tech or one of our people ran over there and got it.
0: Oh, interesting. Right, right. Uh, so ciproheptidine, just to review you know, the literature on that. So, uh, it's looking like, you know, obviously as you mentioned, um, you know, 5HT, 2A and 1A antagonist oral medication from what I found in the reading 12 milligrams up front is a recommended dosing followed by two milligrams Q2 hours until resolution of symptoms, eight milligrams Q6 hours prescribed once stabilization is achieved and total dose should not exceed a half milligram per kilogram per day. So 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day would be a max dose. And as you said, Katie, once this person uh, received this medication, your patient improved quite rapidly.
1: Yes. And she didn't require anything else. That's interesting. Yeah. We kept her for a few hours and then just for overnight monitoring, we shipped her to the other place in town.
0: Okay. So you, so you did encourage her to stay overnight. Yes. But uh, obviously that required a transport to an overnight hospital.
2: Mm -hmm. We do have, we do have inpatient beds at our surgery hospital. Um, So in in my case, if I remember correctly, we just managed with the benzodiazepines and they were able to, I think they redosed her once maybe around midnight. Um, But otherwise just kind of supportive care overnight.
0: Okay. Interesting. So your patient, Trent, did not get ciproheptadine.
2: From what, again, forgive me, it's been a while ago, um, but they did not, from what I remember. Yeah, just been zoned
0: in supportive care. Correct. Great, great. Well, uh, as we talked about, prevention can be really tricky. So just to sound off on that, I mean, I guess, kind of have your feelers up if you're having patients that are on SSRIs or MAOIs. And then, you know, hopefully this podcast and just having some case studies kind of seared in your mind um, from listening to this. And maybe obviously if you've got personal case studies for the listeners out there, but thinking about... Those antidepressant medications and then the interplay of fentanyl on Dance-a-tron, uh Methylene Blue, any other medications that we should be aware of in terms of uh, possibly contributing to serotonin syndrome?
2: You know, I think I use Fusfar, uh lithium would be another one. My patient was on lithium yeah. and uh, she had had a bowel prep and we. That was something I wish I'd done in retrospect. Was test her lithium lef- levels prior to surgery because they were definitely out of therapeutic range. Um, other things to think about are uh, not over the counter, so amphetamines, cocaine, ecstasy, and maybe even LSD. Um, if you know, depending on your patient population. Great, yeah, that's a that's a great point to have.
0: And then, so with fentanyl, it's really any of the phenylpiperidine opioids, so Sufenta, Alfenta, and Probably more commonly given remifentanil would also be in that same class of medications. Uh, you mentioned uh, dextramorphine, buprenorphine is also in there, tramadol, papyridine, all of those medications. Um, well, that's very very interesting. I'm stoked that we got to talk through these cases. Um, is there anything else that you would want to tell CRNAs about managing serotonin syndrome, either in general or about these two cases that you experienced?
2: Yeah, I think both. The uh, takeaway not just from these cases, but being in a smaller hospital, is don't be afraid to call for help. You know, if it's something you don't recognize, maybe it's maybe it's the ED doctor, maybe it's just a a nurse who's been around and seen stuff. You know, sometimes just laying another eyes on something that you haven't seen before, somebody else may just immediately know what it is.
1: Um, well, and I feel like too sometimes you're when you're in the middle of it and it's your patient and you're stressed out and a second set of eyes can help tremendously and just kind of pulling you out of that tunnel vision when you do think it is one thing and somebody else can suggest something else which you know we were fortunate with this one that they were actually pulling up dantrolene and they were about to give it and you know once I we ran through the serotonin quickly the anesthesiologist had never heard about it and so you know i I just asked him to go ahead and try the volume just to see if it would work and give it just a little bit of time instead of trying danteline first. Um, but it was definitely a good situation for our facility, small facility to run through because um, everybody did do great and pulling everything together and uh, making stuff happen in a timely manner. But,
0: yeah, that's, it ended
1: up, it, it went really smoothly and worked out really well. So
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And Katie, we've talked about your case offline. So a couple of those other details that I, I thought were interesting at your facility, the, the physician anesthesiologist and the CRNAs, everybody's doing cases. So this was, you know, some, another anesthesia provider's case. Um, you're kind of jumping in and pack you on someone else's case and helping as that second set of eyes. How did that conversation go when, you know, you're dealing with another anesthesia provider who's, who's, as you just said, is stressed out, is focused on, you know, one particular um, problem in the differential diagnosis. So how did you have that conversation or go about working through bringing up other ideas with that provider?
1: I mean, basically, you know, as I'm putting in the A-line, we're talking about all this stuff and going back and forth and ruling out other things because at that point, you know, I was pointing out her eyes and then the fact that she could still communicate and she wasn't rigid. And so that's when, you know, and he, he was open to suggestion too, because he was concerned and he wanted her to do okay. And it's pretty stressful to see that, you know, the patients, when they get to the point where they're that bad off. So he was willing to try it. And then once everything worked, he came and found me and, you know, thanked me for, for helping him out. And, uh, you know, he was just happy with the outcome. So he said it was definitely a learning experience for him as well.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. And, uh, I would imagine it's got to feel pretty good for you to be able to help out in such a way.
1: I was just thankful that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's scary, especially when you think it might be a malignant hyperthermia yeah. case, because you do get a little amped up, but, um, I'm just glad that everything went well for her.
0: Yeah. It's nice. It's, it's obviously, uh, you know, so um, stress relieving and, and a positive outcome for the patient to see signs and symptoms turn for the better in those situations. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like just to emphasize kind of a, a little bit of tidbit that you threw out there, you were not settled on serotonin syndrome while you were already escalating your monitoring. And that kind of bought you some time to talk about this differential diagnosis. So you knew some things that you needed to do, you need to throw a tent monitor on her, some some additional oxygen, start an A line for labs, and then during that time, you're still trying to troubleshoot and work through what this could be.
1: Right. My thing was is we need to go ahead and start moving because if it was malignant hyperthermia, we were about to be in a bad spot.
0: That's very interesting, uh, and we're kind of closing out. You both have mentioned you know some of the challenges around working in a small hospital um, with a small team and. You know, how have these cases shaped the way that you approach either management of emergencies or prevention of emergencies? As, you know, two CRNAs, you're working in an independent practice in a small hospital alongside other anesthesia providers who are doing their own cases, including physician anesthesiologists. So, how have these cases kind of shaped your approach? Or do you have any, you know, sound off tidbits that you'd want to share with listeners about managing emergencies in that kind of a setting?
1: Well, It's definitely intimidating to practice knowing you might not have any backup available. Being extremely thorough with pre-ops, I think, can save a lot of headache and stress and prevent issues in the perioperative period. And then being over-prepared for certain things never hurts. Um, I found, though, in intense situations, it's best to speak loudly, stay very calm, and give direct commands and even make eye contact with the people that – you're asking to help you just because if you get hyped up, it really amps things up and it affects others and performance.
0: But but you 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 did mention interest, interestingly right there that to speak loudly, like you want people to hear you.
1: Yeah, for sure. And well, the thing is, I know that I mumble a little bit too. But <laughs> it's definitely.
2: <laughs> and and I'm generally very quiet in the OR, so I think when,
1: both OS are.
2: <laughs> when I speak up, people tend to listen because I don't. <laughs> usually have a lot to say. <laughs> that's uh,
0: very interesting.
2: So it's, it's easy to redirect people when I, you know, when I get loud and serious, um, people tend to pay attention.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a different, there's, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm great to talk about. There's a different voice tone that we should embody when you're dealing with an emergency, you go from chilling to managing a situation. And those are different responses.
2: Uh, and you know, Katie and I both were fortunate when we were ICU nurses, we got to work on the code team for a, for a huge hospital. And that involved every day or every night running to an emergency into a room with 20 other people and, uh, you know, focusing and starting with the ABCs are uh, you know, airway. Okay. Breathing circulation. And then kind of like you guys were talking about, start making moves to, get, early. to early to give you options for when stuff really goes downhill so I think that's something both of us really took away from ICU nursing and hopefully will never leave us.
0: Yeah, it's such a great thing to think about that, you know, are there things that we can start doing right now to help us in case this gets into a worse spot. It reminds me of a of, of a case I had that was a splenectomy. It was kind of a quasi urgent, but scheduled, you know, a patient had a fall, came in to the hospital, was evaluated and then sent home appropriately at the time. Uh, and then four days later, they kind of had a slow bleed out of a, out of a spleen laceration that wasn't really appreciated or found on any imaging on their initial presentation. So they had come back in and patient was, you know, walkie talkie in great shape, doing fine. And we're like, Oh, we need to go to the OR today, but it's not like a crash into the OR emergency and then, you know, within 15 minutes after incision, the surgical residents elbow deep in this guy's abdomen and then kind of all hell broke loose with, you know, yeah. massive hemorrhage and hypotension. And, you know, just as the bleeding began, I, I, I went for like the Ranger warmer and like the flute, like the blood squeezer, little like IV mm-hmm. set, like, oh, we're going to, well, we're going to give some blood. So let's set up a warmer. And then I said, nah, let's go ahead and get the Belmont out. You know, let's just, let's just up our game, you know, let's get big IV access and call for the Belmont and get that set up. And I'm super glad that we did because we ended up running a massive transfusion on this patient and having that equipment available, just, you know, escalating to a big gun, like the Belmont over like a little fluid Ranger and and what you can squeeze in manually really helped made it make a difference in that case. So yeah, all those, you know, those kind of settings, if you can you know, divide and conquer, delegate, speak clearly and, you know, ramp up to manage the situation, you know, get a second IV started, drop an A-line in, put some oxygen on, let's get monitoring squared away, draw some labs and start talking to people, you know? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically don't stand back, like jump in there and start doing the stuff that needs to happen. You can have the conversation during it, especially if the patient's somewhat stable, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And before we go, I just want to <laughs> kind of see if we can tease into that a little bit more just about the interprofessional communication around differential diagnosis. So I, I would imagine, you know, I mean, Trent, you had like a, a crazy sole anesthesia provider in-house. You're pulling in ER physicians and, you know, get, getting surgeons to manage anesthesia while you step out of the OR. I mean, that's kind of like the Wild West a little bit. I mean, y'all are out in Durango and all.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, and 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 Katie, you're you're working with a a very experienced physician anesthesiologist, but someone come to find out who had not heard of serotonin syndrome in, in before. So, um, w- will you speak just a little bit of, again about the communication that 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 takes with talking to colleagues and pulling people in to to help figure out a differential diagnosis and maybe some of the hallmarks of either, you know, being open minded or humble or being willing to reference resources or. You know, what, what were strengths in those kind of moments for each of you?
1: Well, for me, the physician anesthesiologist was open to suggestions. And once I did bring up serotonin syndrome, you could tell he, you know, he was he was like, what? <laughs> so as I'm, you know, in motion and talking about it and pointing out things to this patient, uh, one of my coworkers, actually, Cody Burke, walked up and he pulled up UpToDate and uh, started running through all the signs and symptoms and differentials from date as well, which is a, a good resource to have on your phone. And so he backed me up with support as well as one other CRNA, Karen Fineseth, that walked up behind him because she had never seen that before either. And uh, as the all of us start discussing, uh, he, he was definitely accepting and willing to try it just because yep. it was going to be something easy to treat and, uh, so he opted to hold off on the dantrolene, even though we drew up quite a few vials. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he he was open to suggestion for sure, and it worked out better. So That's
0: great. That's great. And Trent, anything from your cases that you would take away in terms of interpersonal communication and what really helped in those moments?
2: You know, I, we were fortunate again that we kind of knew what was going on with that case. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the other two came in, told them, the scenario, they pulled up up to date again, and uh, everybody just kind of worked from there. You, know, I, I had a different situation recently where eh, an anesthesiologist had a, an airway crisis and, um, you know, called out for all hands and walked in, recognized for what it was. Again, what we were talking about was just that tunnel vision that provider had just kind of tunnel vision and... As soon as I walked in was able to recognize there was no end title um, and it was the end of the case, so there should have been end title yeah um, but it turns out just the kid had thrashed his head around and pulled the et tube out but it just took took those outside eyes and and uh you know we're we're fortunate we've been here we're starting to uh, gain the trust a little bit and and you know just listen to your partners regardless of who it is if it's a physician or a nurse you know when people are throwing out ideas or um, may have seen something that you haven't seen just let go of that total vision if you can yeah
1: yeah you know, take a take a step back and look at overall at the whole case and take a deep breath and you know actually take into account what others are saying
0: yeah that's great that's great Well, uh, Katie and Trent Bishop, I'm so stoked that you were willing to come on and share your stories. I think these are phenomenal case studies, and uh, I appreciate the rundown on serotonin syndrome and both of you bringing your stories uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. Thank you, John. And uh, you, you have multiple friends here now. We're not the only ones. So uh, <laughs> there's an open door out here for you.
0: Yeah, since we're since we're dropping names, shout out to Zach and Beth, to Red out there, uh, critical care nurses, and, and Zach, a flight nurse there in Durango. So, well, thank you all so much and best of luck out there with your practice and let's stay in touch moving forward. Yeah, right.
1: will do. Thanks, John.
0: All right, so let's review the key highlights and hit on a few details. Serotonin syndrome is a crisis of having too much serotonin accumulation in the body. Let's remember that serotonin is a neurotransmitter. And just to put serotonin in context, let's review that there are several classes of neurotransmitters, including the amino acids, which are glycine, glutamate, and GABA, acetylcholine, monoamines, which include serotonin, and unconventional neurotransmitters like nitric oxide, carbon monoxide, endocannabinoids, and neuropeptides. Serotonin is a monoamine neurotransmitter, specifically an endolamine. Other monoamine neurotransmitters include the catecholamines, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is shortened as simply 5-HT. There are 15 serotonin receptor types categorized in seven families, And the two most commonly implicated in serotonin syndrome are 5-HT1A and 5-HT2A. Remember that ondansetron and metaclopramide are 5-HT3 receptor antagonists. Serotonin is derived from tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid that comes from foods such as chocolate, milk, chickpeas, red meat, fish, and poultry. Shout out to all the RDs out there. Melatonin is produced from serotonin in the pineal gland, and of course, melatonin is central in the regulation of sleep and wake cycles. Serotonin is central to a virtual plethora of physiologic processes. These include most brain functions, which regulate mood, sleep and wake cycles, behavior, perception, appetite, memory, sexuality, and more. Serotonin is a key neurotransmitter in vascular biology, cardiopulmonary function, endocrinology, and metabolism, as well as pain control, nociception, nausea and vomiting, and even the neurophysiologic response to inhalational anesthetics. Serotonin regulates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA access at several levels. It has a role in regulating vasodilation, vasoconstriction, pulmonary artery hypertension, myocardial remodeling, and platelet function. I've mentioned AOK or atropine on Dantatron-Catorlac therapy before in the podcast, and one theory about these medications' ability to interrupt the cardiovascular collapse related to amniotic fluid embolism is their disruption of serotonin's role in increased vagal tone, increasing pulmonary artery hypertension, and even platelet aggregation. These physiologic and pharmacological processes related to serotonin are complex and variable depending on the pathophysiology present. And the serotonin receptor targeted, and even the point in time during pathophysiologic processes that serotonergic medications are administered. As Western Carolina University Program Director and resident Englishman Dr. Ian Heuer puts it, it's complicated. That's not a very good English accent, but shout out to all the sRNAs at WCU and Dr. Heuer. There's links in the show notes to several articles that will expand on serotonin's role in human physiology that you may find interesting. We've covered how this is clinically relevant to anesthesia providers in the perioperative environment through the case studies presented in this podcast. If your patient is experiencing the symptom triad of serotonin syndrome, which is altered mental status, including confusion, agitation, or anxiety, autonomic dysfunction, including diaphoresis, tachycardia, hypertension, and hyperthermia, and neuromuscular excitability, specifically hyperreflexia, including clonus. You need to think about the possible serotonergic medications they may have received and whether or not they're experiencing serotonin syndrome. Remember that serotonin syndrome is a drug reaction from too much of one or a combination of serotonergic medications. These include medications that either block the reuptake of serotonin, like SSRIs, opioids, and antiemetics, including ondansetron. Meds that decrease the breakdown of serotonin, like monoamine oxidase inhibitors, methylene blue, and certain antibiotics, including linezolid and terezolid. Meds are drugs that increase precursors to serotonin, like lithium, fentanyl, and LSD, and meds and drugs that increase serotonin release, including amphetamines, MDMA, and cocaine. And meds that block the breakdown of some of the medications already discussed, via the inhibition of CYP2D6 and CYP3A4 enzymes, which include the antibiotics erythromycin, ciprofloxin, and the antifungal fluconazole. Your differential diagnosis list may include malignant hyperthermia, so review whether or not the patient actually received triggering agents such as succinylcholine or volatile anesthetics. If they didn't, it's not MH. If they did, trend their temperature and monitor their end-tidal CO2, in addition to all of the other interventions that you may end up doing to treat MH. Post-op delirium and pain is another differential diagnosis. So review their intraoperative medications and consider avoiding additional fentanyl and avoid dimerol, which is miperidine. Both of these can cause and exacerbate serotonin syndrome. Another differential diagnosis is neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So review if the patient has recently withdrawn from a dopaminergic medication like carbidopa levodopa, which is used to treat Parkinson's disease. Check whether they received haloperidol, which is Haldol, intraop, and what dose was administered. Haldol can trigger neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Remember that neuroleptic malignant syndrome has a more insidious or slow onset than serotonin syndrome and the patient will exhibit more of a lead pipe rigidity versus a clonus. Google or YouTube clonus. Check some videos out on that so you know what we're talking about. Other differentials include opioid-induced muscle rigidity and seizure, so work through ruling out those two variables. Treatment is largely supportive. Stop the offending agent and avoid giving additional serotonergic medications. Provide reassurance to your patient. Their uncontrollable symptoms, coupled with likely postoperative pain, can be very distressing. Consider administering a benzo like diazepam, which is Valium, or lorazepam, which is Ativan, to help calm the patient and relax the clonus. Manage hemodynamics with antihypertensives. Administer a fluid bolus and hydrate the patient. Consider administering ciproheptadine. Remember that ciproheptadine is a 5 HT2A antagonist, which is one of the serotonin receptors implicated in serotonin syndrome. It's an oral medication which can be crushed and administered via a nasogastric tube. The dose is 12 mg up front, followed by 2 mg Q2 hours until resolution of symptoms, or 8 mg every 6 hours prescribed once stabilization is achieved. The total dose should not exceed 0.5 mg per kilogram per day, and with any dosing, be sure to check up-to-date published literature to make sure that the dosing is accurate. For severe cases, you will need to manage acute renal failure, rhabdomyolysis, and coagulopathy. Symptoms usually resolve within 24 hours after stopping the offending agent. In terms of prevention, a thorough pre-op anesthesia assessment is crucial. Review home medications, baseline psychiatric disorders, and changes to medication regimens. If you note serotonergic medications on their home med list, especially SSRIs, like fluoxetine, which is Prozac, citalopram, which is Selexa, sertraline, which is Zoloft, or esitalopram, which is Lexapro, use caution when administering common medications like ondansetron, metoclopramide, fentanyl, remifentanil, and methylene blue. All right, so that's it. I hope this podcast cleared up serotonin syndrome for you. I hope it gave you some key takeaways and some stories to help you remember to have your guard up for this rare but potentially life-threatening syndrome, which is often a reaction to medications that we gave the patient. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.